writers explore the 19th century, though one writes fiction and the other nonfiction, their methods of steeping themselves and their work with period detail are very similar and something that interested me. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Neil Thompson joins us in just a minute with his Narrative Americana, a nonfiction account of the Irish immigration of the 19th century in the first Kennedys, the humble roots of an American dynasty. This isn't the Kennedy Camelot or tragic tale of our 20th century Kennedys. Thompson presents a story more about who we are as Americans and our foundations as immigrants. A little later in the show, we'll visit Connie Hertzberg-Mayo, whose novel is The Sharp Edge of Mercy and set at the turn of the last century in America's first cancer hospital. Her book is imbued with rich details of the time and themes of medical ethics, racial injustice, gay relationships, and workplace harassment. Stay with us. It's a novel idea. We think we know the Kennedy family, a slain president, a war hero killed in action, a murdered senator, grieving widows and orphaned children. Neil Thompson, in his book, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty, exposes the American roots of the Kennedy family and the roots of many American families, including his own immigrant Irish heritage. Thompson is a journalist and author of Light This Candle, The Life and Times of Alan Shepard, Driving with the Devil, Southern Moonshine, Detroit Wheels, and The Birth of NASCAR, and Lick Flip Boys, a memoir of freedom, rebellion, and the chaos of fatherhood, to name a few. Let's listen to our conversation. Neil Thompson, welcome to talk with us about your book, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. Thanks, Suzanne. So good to be here. I'm happy to talk with you today. Before we get into The First Kennedys, I wonder if we can talk a bit about your writing life, because you have published several other books, including a memoir. And I wonder what drives you and how you arrive at each subject, because they, on the surface, seem kind of varied. <laughs> I, I, they are, and my agent will uh, confirm that. Um, <laughs> you know, you're right. I'm, I'm a little all over the place on the surface. Um, but I think one of the things that's always inspired me, motivated me when I'm looking for a story, whether it's a newspaper article back during my reporting days or a magazine article or in recent years books, I want to find mainly an interesting character or a number of interesting characters. And I want to see them overcome some hardship and accomplish something. Every one of my stories is, a, is about someone sort of facing down uh, some kind of either tragedy or difficulty, overcoming some blockade that isn't preventing them from achieving the life they want to live. Many of the characters I write about are, are aspirational, you know, Southern moonshiners who want to go fast and make money. Um, my first book was a biography of Alan Shepard, the astronaut. He wants to be the first in space, and he was. Um, you know, a high school football team after Hurricane Katrina striving to put their team back together and, and win the state championship. And in this case, uh, you know, poor Irish immigrants trying to start a life for themselves in America. So ideally, these stories are kind of stitched together 
Um, I call them narrative Americana um, because they are, you know, American stories about strivers uh, who, again, have to overcome something that's preventing them from achieving what they're striving for. The first Kennedys definitely is that. And it ends and also begins where most of our general knowledge resides. Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of JFK, Bobby, and and Ted Kennedy. And you open the book with the death of John Kennedy Jr. in a plane crash off of the Massachusetts coast. But did you know early on that the parameters of the book would really be that immigration experience and the first generation of Americans in that family? I didn't, Suzanne. And in fact, the book took a lot of twists and turns, and it took me a while to find the the storyline. And and really, the storyline for me became Bridget Murphy Kennedy, who we'll talk about. But um, early on, I, I you know my interest in the book was inspired by, or, or at least at least triggered by, JFK Jr.'s death, um, which I covered for my newspaper, The Baltimore Sun. In the opening pages of the book, I write about how I was sent up to Hyannisport to report on the, on JFK Jr.'s death and seeing the scene up there and seeing the people's reaction to his death, again, triggered something. And it also kind of coincided with kind of an awakening of my own as it relates to my own Irish heritage. My grandparents on my mother's side were Irish immigrants. And those two things over the next few years, I were, kept competing for my attention. I wanted to know more about the Kennedys. I wanted to know more about Irish history and my own heritage. And a research trip to Ireland to um, visit the Kennedy homestead, as it's called, the the farm where Patrick Kennedy, JFK's great-grandfather, was born and raised. So I kept collecting string, as they call it, and doing bits of research and some travels. And, And it took a while to really figure out what I wanted to say. You know, there's been so much written about the Kennedys, obviously. Millions of words spent on that family. Um, But most of those words devoted to the 20th century Kennedys, as you said. And along the way, I I knew I didn't want to tell any of those stories. I wanted to go back to some starting point and figure out where that all began. I wanted to find the 19th century origins of what became the 20th century Kennedys that we know of today. But it, it, it did take a while. And really what got me very focused was we were having very different conversations about immigration. That's when I realized I want to tell the Kennedy immigration story. You know, I want to show them coming from Ireland and getting, uh, making their way to a, a country that really didn't want them or their kind. You have a Bridget and a Patrick in your family line, and they have may have experienced something similar to what that Bridget Murphy, Kennedy, and Patrick Kennedy in the 1800s experienced? Yeah, I I really did try and tap into what would likely have been the experience of my grandparents, Bridget and Patrick, as I tried to bring to life Bridget and Patrick Kennedy. Um, Because really one of the goals of this book has been to explore the Irish immigrant experience overall you know, telling the story through the experience of Bridget and Patrick Kennedy and their children and their first decades in America. But I also did keep in mind quite often that this would have been very similar to the experience of my own immigrant grandparents. 
And there were times when I was trying to bring Bridget Kennedy to life and I would try and envision my own grandmother, Bridget, who actually changed her name to Della when she got to America because she felt Bridget was too uh, common, uh, a, a, uh, an affiliation with the, the uh, Irish Bridget, with Irish maids in America. She didn't want to be thought of as, a, as a, a, an Irish maid, which is how she started in America. Well, it was really eye-opening the way you set up the whole immigration scene from Ireland where people were suffering from the potato famine and from being Catholic and to do these transatlantic crossings that many people didn't even survive and landing in Boston Harbor. I found a lot of that the most interesting reading because it, like I said, was just an eye-opener for the real suffering and the real tenacity these people had to have. It was honestly eye-opening for me as well, Suzanne. I mean, I, I knew in broad strokes the, the history of the potato famine and the mass migration of Irish refugees to this country, to America. But a lot of the details were were new to me and, and a lot of the suffering that they were up against was new to me. I mean, it says a lot about, uh, to use your word, and I like that word, tenacity, it says a lot about the tenacity of Bridget Murphy Kennedy, that she was willing to take this risk to get on a dangerous ship crossing the ocean at a time when those ships were known to sink or catch fire or run into icebergs, or people would die of starvation or disease on the boats. And and then to come to a, a, a land that ostensibly was welcoming to immigrants, but, um, you know, a lot of them quickly learned what that Boston in particular didn't really want Irish or Catholics as neighbors. So to face down all of that really says a lot about both the the desperation to leave a country that they felt was unsustainable, um, but also to take a chance on a new land and to start a new life. I think Bridget was a very tenacious and and uh, brave woman to do that. And she did so alone. She came here alone, like many of the Irish immigrant women did, who came to America in greater numbers than the men. Which I also found fascinating that uh, women came, they came on their own, they often didn't marry young, so they were making their way, and they were just strong people. And that was surely her case. Uh, the, the first Kennedy to be buried in America was named John Kennedy, and it was the son of Bridget and Patrick Kennedy. Yeah. And then to be followed by Patrick Kennedy, Bridget's husband, who died just a few years later, really. So their and their names are so familiar to us, John Kennedy and Patrick Kennedy. So to me, this created this specter of future loss uh, in the family. So I don't know, I found that all kind of chilling and, and interesting. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It it. it sort of presages what's going to come later and and what the future generations of that family are going to face. I mean, they faced tragedy and loss right from the very beginning here in America. I've described in the book, Bridget's, you know, after she buries her, her firstborn son, John F. Kennedy, and then her husband, Patrick, later when her daughters start having their children, she loses at least a dozen of her own grandchildren, Bridget does. I mean, there's just so much death and hardship because they... You know, they were poor, they lived in crowded, you know, slums of, of Boston in the Kennedy's case, surrounded by disease and, and hardship. And so 
Um, again, it just says a lot about Bridget that she was able to overcome that, to push past those tragedies, to keep her family together. Um, and I describe in the book how it, it could have just so easily ended on November 22nd, 1858, which was the day Patrick Kennedy died, leaving Bridget alone with her four kids in a, in a tenement in East Boston. That could have been the day things ended. Um, so I think that date itself is kind of resonant, the same date that uh, John F. Kennedy would later be assassinated. Yes. I mean, talk about chilling. That, that, really, <laughs> that really kind of is. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago about how some of our current situation and our, our current view of immigrants and taking jobs and, and what they face when they come here uh, was in your mind as well. And that really struck me also. Here we're talking about the middle 1800s, yet so much of the cruelty, so much of the xenophobia. And I had to ask a question, is this part of our national DNA as well? Unfortunately, I think it is. And and that was a pretty shocking discovery for me as well. I mean, I, again, I had a general sense that keeping immigrants uh, out of this country or down once they got here w- was part of our past, but I didn't know how deeply it was interwoven into, into the fabric of who we are. I, th- I found it really interesting that that when the Irish came, when the Kennedys came, they were part of this first wave of, of a large-scale mass migration of people fleeing their country. Um, there have been many trickles of immigration from other parts of the world until then. I mean, we are a, a nation that was was colonized by England and, and then subsequently populated by people from other countries. But when the Irish came in large numbers, tens of thousands a year, you know, a few million overall in the mid 1800s into the late 1800s, that's when things really changed. That's when that that aspect of our of our DNA that you mentioned uh, sort of kicked into high gear, and many people freaked out and you know aggressively tried to prevent uh, immigrants from having any type of success in America, uh, preventing them from voting, preventing them from holding public office, controlling you know how they learned in in our schools, or sending them back. You know, I found many headlines from the mid 1800s that were very familiar to what we've heard in recent years. Build a wall, keep them out, send them back. Um, So those attitudes have been there. And not just in pockets. You know, I described the political party that was created, the Know Nothing Party, to to specifically keep Irish and Catholics under control as they viewed it. Um, So sadly, I think it is a part of who we are and when we're still living with that today. And the Irish are white people. So, so it wasn't even a racial thing. Or, or they did maybe consider it a racial thing as the Irish and let alone Irish Catholic being that different. And it's so interesting to me that I think of Boston as kind of this Irish town, yet it wasn't always that way. And you say that between 1850 and 1855, that the Irish population in Boston grew 200%. And so they're fleeing their homeland and finding a home there in Boston and really came to then change some of the institutions, including 
the schools, which were really teaching, public schools were teaching a Protestant type of curriculum. And so maybe this even then led to the rise of more Catholic schools. And so it seemed like there were social changes. You you make a point of saying, oh, the first, you know, the first Irish cop. And yet we kind of now stereotypically think of cops as being Irish. So I don't know, this must have all hit you in a surprising way too. Oh, it absolutely did. You know, as, as you said, we, we, we think of, because it's true, Boston being this very Irish and democratic uh, town as well. Um, and at the time of Bridget and Patrick Kennedy coming to live there and then raising their children and including PJ, who became, a, you know, a saloon keeper and politician, they had to fight every step of the way to gain any kind of agency for themselves. But, um, but the b- book really does cover this period of transformation as you see that city starting to tilt little at a time and then, and then a lot at a time toward uh, becoming a, a, a city of and for Irish and Catholics. Uh, I, I mentioned PJ, who um, ran for public office in the mid-1880s. Um, he was part of this first wave of Irish democratic politics breaking their way into this elected office in a city that at the time was controlled by mainly Republicans and some in the Prohibition Party, but mainly old school families. And really, it's during PJ's day that you see the city transforming itself into a city run by Irish Democrats, you know, and he was part of that first wave of that. So it really is a transformation of a city from old school, old timey, stuffy, you know, Brahmin Boston into more of a scrappy Irish run uh, and democratic city, uh, just in the, in, over the course of a few decades, largely because of that wave of Irish immigrants who came through and settled there instead of moving West. Yes. And before we get to PJ, I, I want to get back to, to Bridget a little bit and give her a little bit more due because Strong Irish women were a big part of the success of of immigrant families. And uh, you say, the boys destined to become the most powerful men in Boston had been raised and influenced by strong, steely, widowed mothers. And she did go from being a maid, essentially, to running a business and to uh, renting out places. So talk a little bit more about Bridget Murphy Kennedy. Yeah, uh, I think her ascent uh, in in a relatively short period of time is pretty remarkable. As you said, when she came to America, she started at the very, very bottom as a low-paid maid, uh, getting treated poorly by her employers. But I describe the character of women like Bridget and and found examples and stories about other maids, many of them also named Bridget. At that time, they were a feisty bunch. They were not willing to get pushed around by their employers. They had come to America for, for a better life and they kind of wouldn't be uh, stopped in that, in that pursuit. So you see a lot of these uh, Irish maids you know, rejecting certain uh, working conditions if they didn't like how their employers wanted to, employer wanted to work seven days, they would demand a day off. They were just um, sassy uh, 
as how they were sometimes described. And Bridget Murphy in particular shows that sassiness and this unwillingness to settle for just being a maid for the rest of her life. So she's uh, after Patrick dies, which seems like a pretty terrible point in her life. Pretty soon after she finds a better job as a, as a servant at a, a, a fancy hotel a few years later is working um, at a, uh, a department store in downtown Boston as a hairdresser. Um, one account described her as the chief hairdresser. It seems she learned a little bit about business there. And then by 1865, she's running her own little grocery shop in East Boston at a time when that just didn't happen. Women running their own shop in particular, you know, widowed immigrant women running their own shop. And then over time, that shop succeeds and she's able to take out a mortgage and buy the building and buy the building next to that. And, and as you described, starts renting out the uh, apartments above her own business, uh, mainly to incoming Irish immigrants, two of whom become her sons-in-law. Um, so I describe in the book how Bridget really becomes kind of a fixture in her community and, and a respected community neighborhood figure and business leader in her own way. Um, so her, her ascent and, and her ability to achieve as much as she did in her lifetime in America, I think, is, is pretty remarkable. I have to say, again, I did think of when you talk about steely widowed mothers, I, I couldn't help but to think of Jackie O and Ethel Kennedy, who were also widowed mothers of, of children and, and had to carry on. So again, it was just oddly this specter of of the modern Kennedy family that I saw really reflected in your early accounts of their lives. And I don't know, maybe if we all would go back that far in our family trees, we we might start seeing similarities. I, I don't know. But did that strike you too? Oh, yeah. I just found many uh, uh, examples like that, where, where you look forward to the 20th century Kennedys and see something similar uh, sort of occurring again. Um, so I, I th and I don't believe in, you know, the Kennedy curse or that kind of thing. But I, I do think there were situations that that uh, uh, repeatedly affected that family in similar ways. Um, and I also try uh, along the same lines to show how some of the traits of the early Kennedys, Bridget in particular, and then and then continuing with her son PJ, affected uh, subsequent generations of Kennedys, and how you see those traits, you know, reappear uh, down the line. You know, that tenacity being one of them, uh, the ability to recover from hardship uh, and to rebound from tragedy is another. But also things like you know, caring for your neighbor and and helping others and public service and this, this um, uh, desire to give back, all, all those things, I think you can argue, start with Bridget and, and her son, PJ, and her, and her other daughters. So let's talk about PJ. He was the son born, maybe he was born, do I recall this right, like the day after his father, Patrick Kennedy, died? He, he was born the, the same year, but um, he was 10 months old when his father died in 1858. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe PJ started out as a, a ruffian or, you know, down on the docks, and he worked down on the docks for a while. But he transformed himself or found a, a niche also that allowed him to be a successful businessman. 
So tell us a little bit about P.J. Kennedy. Yeah, he, he's also remarkable as a, as a character to me. Uh, and the book is divided kind of roughly into those two parts, the first half being Bridget's story, and then the second half being the story of P.J. and his own remarkable ascent. But you're right. He started out as a fatherless kid. His mother was working all the time and he was allowed to roam around his neighborhood and he did get in trouble. He did spend a period of time uh, at a detention center when he was about 12 years old, probably for truancy. Um, but then over time, just, you know, put his head down and worked. He had a great work ethic. He worked as a longshoreman on the docks of East Boston for many, for a few years and then discovered uh, saloon keeping. It wasn't a big drinker, not much at all himself, but he uh, realized that the saloon business was one that an Irish immigrant son could get involved in um, and be a success at, and he found he was good at it. He was good behind the bar. He was a good listener. He became someone that people would go to uh, for help or advice or you know, suggestions on where to find a place to live or where to find a job. Um, he became similar to his mother, a neighborhood fixture, as he experienced one successful saloon after another. And then that uh, business leads him maybe inevitably at that time into politics. Um, he started out as a, a ward helper um, in Ward 2 of East Boston, kind of a street level community organizer type working for the older politicians for the Democratic Party and little by little proves himself uh, as a loyal soldier. And in time, they ask him to run for office, which he does uh, in 1885. Again, just as the Irish are, are coming into their own as politicians in, in Boston, he runs for office actually just, just months after the Boston elects its first ever Irish Catholic mayor. And then from that point forward, he is on his way. Uh, he becomes a, a hugely successful and influential politician, as well as a successful businessman getting involved in banking and real estate and coal and other enterprises. And PJ was involved, his saloons that he had, this was also when there was a lot of talk about prohibition. And uh, I mean, eventually we saw prohibition happen in this country, but it seemed like there was always this edge of People are drinking too much. There's too much access to booze. And yet he persevered in this line of business. And I, I'm wondering what you thought about all that. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating period to explore. You know, we all know that we had that period of prohibition in the 1920s and up to 1933, but I didn't realize that there were many efforts for decades before that to to shut down the sale and consumption of liquor in America. I think part of it had to do with the fact that many of the proprietors, uh, at least in Boston and parts of Massachusetts, proprietors of the saloons and beer halls were uh, immigrants, either Irish or German. And so I think some of those efforts were anti-immigration efforts as well, mm. trying to prevent uh, a, a scrappy little immigrant business from surviving. But it's also a reflection of our sort of you know, moralistic uh, political past. Um, but you're right. It seemed like every year there was a new law that was trying to change how those businesses conducted themselves. I described the the screen law. You couldn't have a, 
a screen in your front window because the cops were supposed to be able to walk past and look in and see all the drinkers without any sort of uh, barrier to, to their sight of line of sight. Um, there was a law that required uh, seated tables and food be served. No, no, quote unquote, perpendicular drinking was allowed for periods of time. So those efforts were like every other year slamming into uh, small business owners like PJ. And I think that is one reason he also got involved in politics, because he was able to sort of change some of those laws and bring a more reasonable perspective to uh, to those kinds of businesses and what what laws governed, you know, what those businesses could and couldn't do. He was respected by other politicians as well. And at that time, it seems like there was, uh, well, could be at every time, but a lot of backroom um, decision making about who we should run for this and who we should run from that. And, and he was a part of that. That might have been his stronger role as kind of a behind the scenes person, rather than an actual legislator. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think he didn't love campaigning. Um, he wasn't a necessarily a good public speaker. And I think he was more comfortable working off to the side or in the shadows. And I think he also found that he had more influence that way. Um, once he got to a point after his seven years uh, in the state legislature um, and another few years in, in various appointed roles, um, I think he found that he had more sway um, as part of this board of strategy, as his particular group was called, you know, some in influential politicians meeting for lunch at the Quincy Hotel. And as you said, dis deciding who was uh, going to be tapped for a certain city job or who would be promoted for a certain elected uh, upcoming election. But I found it interesting with PJ that even though he was playing that role behind the scenes in, and in some cases, as the Democrats gained more control in Boston, that led to corruption and graft and, and you know, sort of the negative side of their rise to politics. But none of that ever seemed to catch up with PJ. He was either really good at avoiding um, getting in trouble or he was, as some of his peers later described him, he was just straight. He just... Uh, was always trying to do the right thing and trying to be helpful to his constituents and trying to keep his nose clean and not get in trouble. And he would pass sort of that advice down to his grandsons. He would, his son and grandsons, he would tell them, you know, um, you know, to be careful and don't get caught and keep, keep your nose clean and do the right thing. And so I think he actually was a good guy and good at what he did and really cared, wanted to help. He uh, had a colleague. Uh, he met another Irishman, uh, Irish immigrant, John Fitzgerald. They were colleagues, maybe not quite friends, but they're really in in that association. Really, does lie the inheritance of of this political dynasty, and John Fitzgerald was not. Uh, or we could say he was somewhat opposite to, to P.J. Kennedy. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, Honey Fitz. Yeah, Honey Fitz is a great character. Um, and, and you're right, they were so different, he and P.J. I, I describe how they should have been, you know, close friends, if not soulmates, because they had such similar backgrounds. They were both American-born sons of immigrant Irish grocers, um, they both lost their fathers 
They both got involved in in uh, uh, Boston politics as uh, young men. But Honey Fitz was brash and and a drinker and loved to give speeches and um, you, you know kind of a cocky guy full of himself. Loved to dance a little jig and sing Sweet Adeline at a bar. Uh, and PJ was quiet, more reserved, um, more introspective, and more of a, a listener than a talker. Uh, but they needed each other. They were peers at a time when the, the rise of Irish Democratic uh, politicians were, they were a small club and they, they did need each other at times. Um, and um, so I described, you know, how they vacationed together at Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and that's where the, their children met each other. PJ's son, Joe, and Honey Fitz's daughter, Rose, meet one summer there and then uh, meet again a number of years later, and that's the beginning of their r- romance that would lead to the the joining of those two families of Honey Fitz's family and PJ's family, um, and give us the Kennedys that we know of today. Um, but I think at the time, um, neither Honey Fitz or, nor PJ uh, nor their spouses necessarily wanted that to happen. I think they tried to keep those their their kids apart. Um, so it's a fascinating relationship there between Honey Fitz and PJ. Uh, not quite friends, but needed each other. And then they end up being sort of joined historically when they're, uh, when Joe and Rose meet and eventually marry. Yes. I want to talk with you just about your research and the significance of a newspaper called The Pilot uh, in that research, because you mentioned that a lot. And it seems like it had a, a place of influence in the life of these people and maybe was a tremendous source for you. It was. And I, I was uh, thrilled to discover it and to discover that I could read every single page of that newspaper from the 1800s online, um, especially as COVID uh, and the you know travel restrictions and, and uh, the closure of libraries and archives kicked in at that created a challenge as I was finishing the book, but I, I was able to find that that and other newspapers online. And it was just a wonderful resource. So the, the Boston Pilot, sometimes just known as the Pilot, was the Catholic newspaper of Boston and uh, was deeply involved in, in the lives of Irish immigrants in, in Boston and across America, but based in Boston. And uh, it was almost a character to me, uh, that newspaper, because it had a strong voice. It was very opinionated. It would tell Irish immigrants to stop clustering in Boston where they're going to get sick and die and go west and, you know, start a farm for themselves out west somewhere. Um, So it was it was almost this maternal or paternal voice for many uh, Irish and Catholics in Boston. And and so it was just a, a. thrilling resource. And I described too the, this um, feature that they had called uh, the missing friends ads where immigrants coming to America would post an ad in the pilot saying, you know, I'm looking for my sister or my cousin. They came to such and such town in 1847 and I haven't seen them since. Please, you know, if, if, you're, if you read this, please contact me at such and such address. So it was almost uh, played a, a role as kind of a, a analog Facebook of its day. <laughs> And you got to read it all online. I did. Yeah, there was a lot that I was able to discover online that I didn't know existed online. Newspapers.com was another research that I relied on heavily that also has just uh, uh, hundreds of uh, newspapers dating back to the 1800s where you can find 
page after page, story after story right there at, at, at my fingertips. It really came in handy. The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. I'm talking with Neil Thompson. Neil, is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we say goodbye? I enjoyed this conversation very much, Suzanne. So thank you for spending the time. Um, I I guess I hope people find some resonance in this story. Uh, uh, Whether you care about the Kennedys or not, it really is, hopefully at its best, a story about who we are, about people coming to America and, and trying to make a start for themselves and pushing past the efforts to, to prevent them from succeeding in America. And so it's not just a Kennedy story. It's about uh, who we all are as, as, as descendants of, of aspiring and striving immigrants. And I, I, hopefully there's, there's some useful relevance to today's situation and, and ideally will make us think a little bit more about what, you know, what the experience is these days for Irish immigrants trying to do the same thing that the Kennedys did back yes. in their day. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. That was my conversation with Neil Thompson. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. Racism, sexual identity, workplace harassment, and medical ethics are issues we deal with daily right now. And they are also issues Connie Hertzberg-Mayo weaves into her novel, The Sharp Edge of Mercy, set in 1890s New York at the first cancer hospital in the country, which would one day become Sloan Kettering. She creates a gritty reality with our own not so far removed. Here's our conversation. Connie Hertzberg-Mayo, your book is The Sharp Edge of Mercy. And uh, first of all, welcome to talk to me about it today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Your book is set in the 1890s in the New York Cancer Hospital, which I think was one of the, maybe the first cancer hospital in the United States. So tell us what drew you to set your story in this time period and, and, and set up the story a little bit for us. Okay. Uh, Well, I started out wanting to write a book about medical ethics. And when I came across uh, the New York Cancer Hospital, which was the first cancer-only hospital in the country and the second in the world, the first one was in London a few decades before. Uh, But I thought that it would be a really good um, uh, setting to try to explore some issues of medical ethics. And it definitely panned out that way, for sure. I've always been interested in the sort of turn of the century uh, literature, and I've read a ton of historical fiction set uh, set in New York and London around this time. It's very uh, a time of great innovation. And uh, my first book was also set, was set in Boston, but was set uh, also right before the turn of the century. So uh, this worked out perfectly because the New York Cancer Hospital opened in the 1880s, where cancer treatment was very rudimentary. And uh, so it was, it, I, it was, it turned out to be a great setting, really. Yeah, at the time, it seems like the treatment for cancer seemed kind of brutal and often symptoms weren't really manifested until it was essentially too late to be successfully treated. I mean, I think that's through the course of history, really. And and also, this was in the early-ish days of anesthesia, um, but it wasn't always used effectively. And, and the outcomes for cancer surgeries weren't always good. 
Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there obviously were limitations in diagnostics, but a really big problem was that people were afraid of hospitals. They were sometimes referred to as death factories. And this is because in part because of not a complete understanding of keeping things antiseptic, um, but also the lack of antibiotics. And so people were afraid of hospitals, so they would actually delay uh, going to a hospital until they had no other alternative. And of course, if you have let your cancer go until you're so desperate that you'll do this thing that scares you, then um, your outcome is, is likely not to be good. So there were not a lot of great outcomes, although I think they were doing the best that they could at the time, but they just had limited tools and there was an attitude um, that prevented people from seeking out that care when they most needed it. And it seems like whiskey was used a lot in a medicinal way, of course. That's how we use it today, but um, maybe just not in the hospital. And, and there is truth in how whiskey was used as medicine. Yeah, I mean, especially when there really wasn't a lot that they could do um, and they didn't have a lot of choices to, to there was a you know palliative care uh, it came in a lot of different forms at that point and some of it was just keeping your patients happy and keeping them uh, you know as pain-free as possible uh, and whiskey was a pretty cheap way to do that and the setting is in this uh, New York Cancer Hospital which maybe some people will recognize this building, which still exists today, though not as a hospital for its kind of iconic uh, round shape. And that was thought to be an innovation at the time, again, for what I'm gathering for hygiene, for creating a clean environment. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, the the building, I mean, I found out about this, uh, the New York Cancer Hospital initially through a podcast that had to deal with architecture. And this building was the the focus of the episode because it was so innovative from an architectural standpoint, because it had these round turrets sort of made it look like a castle. And um, the round, so the wards were, if you imagine the the beds being sort of like a spokes on a wheel. So they were all, you know, feet pointed towards the center. Uh, and the round rooms were uh, gave no corners for dirt and dust to accumulate. They had these central ventilation shafts, so the, the, the ventilation in this building was better than many others. They had very large windows because there was an idea at the time that you know sunlight and 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 some fresh air um, was going to be beneficial to patients. So it was it was seen to be architecturally very uh, innovative. Well, let's get into the story. We've kind of set set up that it takes place largely in a hospital, but also in parts of New York uh, that people will recognize. So set up the story for us and Lillian, who is the young woman at the core of this story, who is a real mix of naivety, kindness, ambition, intelligence. Um, So set up the story and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Lillian. So Lillian is, uh, she's sort of 18, 19 years old during the story. So she is, you know, a young person, but really back then was an adult and was, uh, you know, uh, done with schooling, you know, responsible for working and so forth at that age. And she really wants to be a nurse, but she has several obstacles in her way. So she finds herself, she she's, becomes a nursing assistant because she's not really old enough to go to nursing school. 
And um, so she's the low man on the totem pole um, at this, this hospital. And uh, she, like many young people, uh, enters the, the, the story and, and the scenes um, believing that she really understands right from wrong, that the world is sort of a black and white place, which I think a lot of young people even today feel like they understand the world maybe a little bit more than they actually do. So she uh, enters this job that she's very well suited for, but she soon gets involved in some um, some issues uh, dealing with uh, the ethics of treating these patients that are, uh, there's not much that they can do for some of these patients for the reasons that we talked about before. Uh, but she also gets involved in our relationship with the the top surgeon, the sort of new sheriff in town, he comes in and he's a visiting surgeon. So surgeons uh, did sort of uh, travel around to different hospitals. So he is arrogant and has taken an interest in her that she at first is very flattered uh, to uh, have caught the eye of, of, of this surgeon from an intellectual standpoint. So he engages her in a lot of intellectual conversations um, about patient care and the hospital and so forth. And this is, and she, and she thinks that he can actually help her in her career, but she doesn't really understand the, really what he wants out of this relationship. And it progresses to a point that she didn't anticipate and that um, she has has trouble extricating uh, herself from. So it's it's sort of a um, you know sort of a, a turn of the century Me Too story. Yes, yes. And she was warned. She was warned about it by others, but she just uh, had that uh, stridency that sometimes, as you say, eighteen year olds have. And she felt like she could handle it. <laughs> right. She didn't know what she was supposed to handle. <laughs> right, right, right. And in the story, you've just brought up there's some me too in it, but you also bring up topics of, of race and sexual preference, sexual harassment. And I, I guess I'm just wondering about how you use a story that is set over 100 years ago, to talk about what I consider contemporary issues, but really, they were real issues at the time also. So how did you uh, approach all that in creating your characters? Well, I didn't initially set out to uh, tackle so many topics as I ended up tackling. Um, so I actually was not even thinking that the sort of Me Too element would be a major theme in the book, uh, but it presented itself uh, very forcefully as I was writing this in 2017 and 18, um, when a lot of things in current events were uh, talking about experiences, experiences that young women were having with uh, men who had uh, power positions where they were working and going to school and so forth. Uh, so uh, the book sort of took over and uh, insisted that it be sort of equally themed with, um, uh, with the issues of medical ethics and, um, and the Me Too story. But then other elements, you know, crept in. And I guess um, I never really want to write a historical fiction that doesn't deal with topics that are relevant today, because as an avid reader of historical fiction, I'm most interested when I read about something 50, 100, 200 years ago that, re that resonates with what we're all going through today. 
so uh, I, I, it was um, very pleasing to me to be able to work in uh, some of these other issues that are clearly things that we are dealing with today, such as people struggling with their sexuality, uh, sort of racial issues. Um, so a care, there's also um, issues of uh, caring for um, a disabled dependent, which is, if we think it's challenging now, I would guess that maybe it was more challenging back then when there were less resources around. So to me, that's almost sort of the whole point of writing historical fiction is write about things that are relevant today, but that were actually happening back then. And to have it have an authentic feel as well in just even describing the streets, the the wet shoes, the horse that that can't carry the buggy any longer, you know, uh, and and so I imagine for you as the writer, getting that kind of um, grittiness or or sense of immediacy in a historical fiction seems to be something that you like doing. Yeah, I uh, sort of don't enjoy anything more. I have to tell you to try to um, you know as a writer to try to really get the reader to smell what it was like and to sort of feel, you know, what it would be like to, to be on those streets there. Um, I'm, I can't remember if I ended up putting this in, but um, when I was going through the edit process, one of the things I really wanted to capture, and I don't think I actually found a place for it, it was they had, you know, the elevated uh, uh, subway uh, system there. And one of the things that I read when reading about um, the L back then was that, you know, you'd be walking underneath uh, the tracks and the trains would go over and all this soot and grime and, and would sort of fall on you. And, and, and these sparks would, would, would come off of um, the tracks and could sort of put little burned holes in, in your clothing. And I thought, uh, you know, I sort of wish I had had read that part before I had written some of the scenes where Lillian is taking the L because I really wish that I could have worked it in there. And I don't think I ended up doing that. But that's the sort of detail where I feel like when I read it, I feel like, oh, I understand what it was like, you know, what it would be like to be, you know, walking underneath, you know, the L at, at the turn of the century. I don't recall reading that in the book, but it is something that um, I think we, I don't know, sometimes I feel like we have a lot of trash around us now and that, but back then, it was just in the street. It was on the hem of your dress. Yeah. And, and your dress was long, so it really was on the hem of your dress. <laughs> right. And and several times she talked about, here she is a nurse working with patients and wearing a corset, you know. Right. And so uh, uh, thankfully, uh, fashion trends changed. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, horses. One of the things that people don't realize is, you know, you think we have a lot of pollution, but boy, horses were pretty messy. And one of the things that um, I discovered when I was researching my first book was that a really big problem was when horses would die in the street because they were overworked and sometimes they would just collapse. So um, as you know, in, in um, the Sharp Edge of Mercy, there is a horse that that that's not doing too well and that becomes part of the scene. But um, there was definitely, there was a whole business in people who would come and you know remove horses once if they sort of died in their tracks, they would hang out there for, I don't know, a day or more or whatever until somebody could come 
and, and remove them. And so it's, you know, problem, that's sort of problems that we don't have thankfully anymore, but I think it's something that um, is easy to, uh, you know, not appreciate because we don't, there was just so many horses that were doing so many jobs in urban areas back then. Yeah. Yeah. That was a time of change, both after the Civil War. I think the Civil War probably did bring around a lot of medical advancements, but that it was a, a time of change in, in many ways, that on the cusp of change. And, and that seems to be the time that you're capturing here, where the medical community was forming, but there still were a lot of um, maybe primitive ways of doing things. And you described something in the surgical and in fact the new the new doctor who who kind of um, takes a little advantage of of Lillian's naivety he took over from a different doctor who had a different set of practices and um, we really have have come a long way thankfully yeah. I think that was that was very common that there wasn't uh, consensus. There wasn't one medical journal that sort of said, this is, you know, I mean, maybe the same, same is true today, but uh, there was definitely, they were on the cusp of a lot of pieces of knowledge that were really important. There were most people, uh, most people in the medical community believed now in germ theory, but before that there was more people who believed in the medical community, more doctors who believed in sort of this miasma theory that, that germs were sort of carried you know, through the air. And, you know, of course, some things are airborne, but they really um, didn't understand that so much is transmitted through touch. And so um, it, it uh, there was a lot of uh, evolution of thought at that time. And some people got it right. And some people got it wrong. Some people got it wrong. We're really sticking to their guns. Uh, so um, there was a lot of upheaval when it came to figuring out how science really worked at that time. Lillian, our protagonist, she gets involved with a, a patient um, and is especially challenged by it. And it raises questions for her. Uh, I don't think she uses the term euthanasia or mercy killing, but it definitely does come up. And it's interesting that the word mercy is in the very title of your book. But again, this is a contemporary issue that we grapple with now. And I wonder about your putting Lillian in this very personal and also very ethical predicament that she has to face. I mean, part of the advice that, you know, she gets from her superiors there is just not to get too close to the patients. And I, I'm curious, you know, to know I'm not a nurse myself, but I would be curious to know if this is also something that nurses today, you know, struggle with, you know, because it, it does cloud your vision. Um, and uh, she, Lillian does get very fond of one of uh, her patients who's considered very difficult and just very cranky and doesn't like the other nurses, but she sort of has a way, Lillian has a way with this patient, gets involved uh, in a way that puts Lillian uh, in some danger. And so, you know, especially given that this environment was one where there were so many poor outcomes and there weren't great alternatives. You know, when somebody, uh, you know, lost a limb, there weren't great prosthetics. There were some, they weren't great. 
you know, half of the surgeries uh, you had to, if your patient had surgery, about half of them had to go in for further surgery to sort of cut away what was infected and hope that what remained could be sort of patched up and so forth. So the recovery time from surgeries in this hospital was just weeks and weeks and could even be months because of these repeat surgeries to try to clear these infections. So it was just, you know, a very, a very difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to also mention uh, the name of your previous novel, which is The Island of Worthy Boys. And it's also a period piece, as you mentioned, a piece of historical fiction. And just in what you're talking about right now, it's obvious that you have a research process. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, Well, I'm not really sure how anybody else does it. I only sort of know how I write historical fiction, but there's a um, big research piece that comes before I write anything. And someone also once asked me, so when do, when do you, when does the research stop? And it, I, my answer is it doesn't stop until the very end of the writing process. So you're sort of, if, if you're me, you're researching throughout the time that you're writing, but that there's a, a really big, probably like half the research at least, or more um, I need to do before I start writing, even if if I know the arc of the story and the characters and everything, um, I need to sort of absorb all of that period detail so that it sort of is uh, somewhat seamlessly sort of interwoven when I'm sort of writing a scene and I know that this character has to, you know, sort of interact with this other character. I want to have all of that ambient uh, information in my brain so that it can sort of come out uh, in every sentence. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of research. I mean, this I don't think I would ever attempt to write a book if there were no internet because I don't know how people wrote historical fiction before the internet because <laughs> you would have to spend your entire life in a library during the hours that the library was open and you were available. So um, so this allowed allowed me to write both of these books while um, I had kids. And uh, the first book I wrote when I had kids who were sort of in elementary middle school. And then um, the second, this, this current book, uh, my kids were sort of high school, college. So it, you know, I can, when you're, when you're doing research over the internet, you can do it at midnight, you know, you can do it at 6am when nobody else is up, Uh, trying to balance all the things in my life. uh, I really uh, researched when I could, and the internet allowed me to do that. Yes. Connie Hertzberg-Mayo, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time and the book. Thank you so much. Connie Hertzberg-Mayo, her book is The Sharp Edge of Mercy. Earlier, I spoke with Neil Thompson with his examination of immigrant families in the first Kennedys, the humble roots of an American dynasty. I am Suzanne Lang with production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell. Find our podcast online, listen anytime, subscribe at krcb.org. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. Thank you for listening. It's a novel idea.